if we were going to do a uh, film school, we wanted it to be accessible, but we also wanted to take the piss out of it at the same time, because what do we know, ultimately? That was the voice of Joe Russo, and him and his brother Anthony actually know quite a lot. They directed the top-grossing movie of all time, Avengers Endgame. And earlier this year, their production, Extraction, had Netflix's biggest premiere ever. The Russo brothers are my guests on this edition of Movie Maker Interviews, and one thing that I find so admirable about them is that they don't just make big films, they also make indies. When we talked on Monday, the new horror film Relic from director Natalie Erica James was the top film in the country, thanks to drive-ins. Relic is her feature debut, and it's one of many small and mid-sized films from the Russo Brothers production company, Abgo. Joe and Anthony Russo started small in Cleveland and worked their way up. They got their big break at the Slamdance Film Festival in 1997 with their experimental film, Pieces. It caught the eye of Steven Soderbergh, who became a mentor. They later worked on films including Welcome to Collinwood, and TV shows like Arrested Development, and Community. They joined the Marvel Cinematic Universe in 2014 with Captain America, The Winter Soldier, which took the MCU in a more dramatic direction and led up to the events of Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. Winter Soldier also introduced the character of the Falcon, played by Anthony Mackie, who at the end of Endgame was handed off Steve Rogers' shield to become the new Captain America. Mackie drew a lot of attention last week when he said this during an Actors on Actors conversation with David Diggs for Variety. It really bothered me that I've done seven Marvel movies now. Uh, I've Every producer, every director, every stunt person, every costume designer, every PA, every single person has been white. Mm -hmm. We've had one black producer, his name was Nate Moore, he produced uh, 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 Black Panther. In the interview you're about to hear, I asked the Russo brothers how they felt about that, given that they directed four of the MCU films in which Mackie appeared. One way the Russo brothers are boosting other filmmakers is through their extremely accessible new Instagram live series, Russo Brothers Pizza Film School, where they eat pizza and talk about movies that influence them. Last week's episode covered No Country for Old Men, and this Friday they'll talk with fellow Marvel director Taika Waititi about 1980's Flash Gordon, which was directed by Mike Hodges and might be best known for its thunderous, operatic soundtrack by Queen. I'm movie maker, editor-in-chief Tim Malloy, and I hope you enjoy this conversation with Joe and Anthony Russo. We talked by telephone, which is not my favorite way to record a podcast, but I wanted to share this with you because the Russos have so much information and love of movies to share with their fans. So just to start off, congratulations on Relic. You have the number one movie in the country in a very unusual way. It's a very deserving film, and she's a very deserving filmmaker. I mean, she, she did an incredible job. You said in a number one movie in the country in an unusual way. I saw Scott Mendelson's um, article in Forbes earlier today, and it mentioned that um, Relic has had the highest, the largest openings than, uh, of a movie and theatrical release movie in the U.S. since March 12th. <laughs> which is, yeah, it's just kind of a surreal, weird statistic. Very weird. It seems like your MO uh, in the last decade or so has been, you've had this incredible success with the MCU, and you've really kind of turned around and tried to give back to some smaller films, including Relic, and to work on representation, to have, you know, female-directed films like Relic, to have films with people of color in the leads. Has that been a conscious effort? Absolutely. I mean, we, 
you know, look, it, we grew up in a very eclectic community. We sort of grew up in the east side of Cleveland, and there were a lot of different ethnicities, sort of. Cleveland's a, Cleveland's a kind of city where everybody's very conscious of one's ethnicity. And the you know, city's kind of a, at least for in the period where we were growing up, was kind of like a still a patchwork of different neighborhoods and that were kind of associated with different ethnicities. And our dad at the time was a city councilman who also then ran for mayor. So we, we would kind of, as young kids, we would kind of go around the city with them and experience sort of go into these other cultures. And all of a sudden we'd be in a neighborhood with Slavic writing on the windows and the accents would change. And so we spent a lot of time in black churches and, you know, just like, you know, literally every, every sort of corner of the city. And I think we grew up with a really strong appreciation for I mean, our own family was very conscious of, of its immigrant status from Italy. Um, and we fell in love with world cinema from an early age as well. We grew up near a wonderful place called the Cleveland Cinema Tech, which had an amazing uh, program running of art films and, and world cinema. So I think, you know, from a, from a young age, multiculturalism was always very important to us and very, part, part, very much part of the fabric of, of like this larger community and narrative that we're a part of. So, I mean, we've been very encouraged by like uh, the you know finding a new way to tell stories, finding new to- stories to tell, finding ways to support filmmakers and and talented artists who need their voices heard. I mean, that's been very much a part of our process, and um, it's how we got into the business in the first place. We we very much came from nowhere, making small, no budget movies, and and benefited from. Um, having a patron within the film industry and in Steven Soderbergh who discovered one of our early films and uh, helped us make a transition into filmmaking by producing for us. And we've always looked at it as our obligation now to pay that forward as a comic, as a sort of a karmic debt. And we, we love the opportunities to support new voices, especially when they're diverse and underrepresented. Yeah. I mean, when movie maker makes our list of the top film festivals every year, your names come up constantly because you're always giving back to festivals, whether it's Cleveland, whether it's slam dance, where you formed the relationship with Soderbergh. Um, I just, there's no question that you guys do give back. And that's sort of the context with which I want to ask the next question. Were you surprised by the Anthony Mackie comments last week in variety, where he said that he felt that there wasn't a lot of diversity behind the camera in the MCU, including the film, the films that you worked with him on. Well, I'm not familiar with those, with that quote. So I just have to ask a question. Was he referring to meaning like the film crew in general? Yeah, he was saying that he's, he he was saying he'd worked on seven films and that for the most part, everybody behind the scenes was white. And I, I mean, I can see the diversity on camera in your films. I don't think there's any question that that's the case, that you have made the Marvel universe a more diverse place. So are you surprised to hear him say that he felt that there wasn't enough diversity behind the camera and that he's going to use his leading man status to try to push for more diversity behind the camera in the MCU and in other projects? I think we can always all do better at diversity constantly in this business and in every facet of, uh, of every industry. So uh, uh, he's not wrong at all. And I think that, that, that we all have to work harder to, uh, to keep him in. Uh, endorsing and supporting diversity on both sides of the camera. Yeah, absolutely. Anthony Mackey, we have a ton of respect for Anthony Mackey. He is, 
he's not only an amazing actor, but he's, he's an amazing person. And we've, we've loved uh, our collaboration with him. And uh, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a very smart guy. Yeah. So I want to talk about pizza film school. It's awesome. I love that you're doing it. Uh, Last week you did no country for old men. Everyone understands why you would want to talk about that movie. Why do you want to talk about flash Gordon this week? You know, it's interesting is that this is about our influences. I mean, it started as uh, during quarantine, me showing movies to my kids and, uh, and old films, uh, films that influenced my brother and I, and then talking about it with them, holding a, you know, sort of an ad hoc class after each movie where we discussed structure and theme and tone. Um, and, uh, and I realized, you know, most of my kids hadn't seen these films. So I thought, well, there's probably a real opportunity here um, for a, a younger generation to access the movies that, that, um, that we used to love as kids with some context around, you know, and that's where the idea for pizza film school came from. So Flash Gordon is, is a movie that, you know, came out in 1980, a year after Cleveland went bankrupt. We grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. It was a tough-nosed working-class town. It, you know, industry had collapsed. This was in a big industrial city. Our grandpa worked in the steel mills. And so this was a real tongue-in-cheek escapist movie yeah. uh, coming out a, a year after, you know, um, and Cleveland was the butt of every joke in the country. And he's 10 years old and watching Johnny Carson and he's doing a different joke about Cleveland every night. You know, you, you start to form an inferiority complex. So, you know, escapism becomes a, uh, a, a you know, an important uh, part of your, your upbringing. Uh, um, so Flash Gordon was pure escapism. And I think I've seen that movie more than I've seen any movie in my entire life. And I think I've listened to that soundtrack <laughs> Um, uh, you know, we used to, when that film came out on Betamax a year after it was released, we would play it in the background just to listen to the music. Um, so it was a, it was a very, uh, a profound, had a very profound effect on us. And the tone is completely insane. I mean, it's at times Batman-esque, you know, uh, um, the 60s Batman series uh, in tone. And, uh, and, and at other times it's got Dick Carter in it. So it's this kind of crazy mashup of, of tones and they they actually you know imply that they're going to kill uh the, the lead character 45 minutes into the movie so there's some weird stuff in that film uh and i i don't know that anything has been made that's a mix of sci-fi insanity uh that that comes close to what flash gordon was so for me it still it still holds up as this you know nutty stew of um of of, of themes and tones I very strongly remember seeing that movie in a theater when I was five years old at the Delamo Mall. And you just isolated why I'm kind of scared of Flash Gordon. Like when I when you say Flash Gordon, I kind of panic because I can remember my fear when I was five that Flash Gordon was going to die. Yeah, and they and, and Hodges plays it very real. Creepy. Yeah. There's he spends like 10 minutes, you know, and Flash Gordon's going to die. He gets to have a. The last conversation with Dale, they march him out to the chamber. Uh, they execute him. You know, it, it was intense. I agree. As a kid, I remember watching that going, what are they doing here? They're breaking the rules. Uh, and uh, and the movie has crazy moments like that throughout. Uh, on top of it's like, you know, completely cheesy Gordon's Alive acting moments, you know. 
Uh, and so when you put, put all those together, it equals something very rare and unique. I mean, the other best time I've seen somebody break the rule of the hero can't die is sorry, but infinity war. I mean, I was convinced that they were all maybe gone for good. Did you, was there a direct line between flash Gordon and that? There's a direct line between empire strikes back, flash Gordon, no country for old men. Anytime you subvert, and, and, and frankly, if you go look at the last few episodes of Pizza Film School, these yeah. are all films that subvert structure or uh, moments, uh, um, you, know, uh, you know, attempt to subvert. Um, yeah. Certainly no country subverts it more significantly than yeah. any, just about any modern genre movie I can think of. Um, yeah. They kill the lead character at the end of Act Two, and then they continue the movie for another 20 minutes without the lead character uh, <laughs> empire i think you know it, it's it's still it's early on in what was becoming you know the dominance of commercial structure yeah. in filmmaking right because i think that you would argue that that structure and maybe started in the mid to late 70s uh, uh and that coppola and spielberg and lucas are all sort of the, the godfathers of that structure um uh so but empire uh, subverts the structure by giving you a very dark second act um and uh and that though all, all of these films in a way then contributed to to our feelings at the end of infinity war because we knew we were making a two-parter and we had to do something subversive uh otherwise we were just going to make the same movie twice uh, and Anthony and I love real steaks, as evidenced by, you know, these films that we love, where Luke gets his hand cut off, or Flash Gordon gets executed, or Josh Brolin gets killed, uh, you know, Llewellyn Moss gets killed uh, nine minutes into the film. So those are some of our favorite movies, um, yeah. because we like how they impacted us when we saw them. And we're always trying to impart an emotional experience on the audience, and sometimes the best way to do that is through sacrifice and death with the character. Has anyone put together a list? People are going to be so mad at me that I asked this question when I have this time with you, but has anyone put together a list of all of the pizza places that you've recommended in pizza film school? Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know. We, we could, could do that. Yeah. We might want to post that. Um, uh, that's a good idea. I'm writing that down right now. <laughs> have you uh, tried Casa Bianca in Pasadena? I think it's Pasadena. I have not. Ants out in Pasadena. Have you heard of it? Uh, Casa Bianca is an Eagle Rock. Yeah, I have. Yes, you're right. It is an Eagle it, Rock. It, it, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's great. It's a very old school place. Um, I get the eggplant parmesan there generally, but um, yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a, it's fun. Good pizza. So does the nostalgia of eating pizza and just having a good time and the nostalgia of watching these movies, are they sort of all of a piece for you? Because for me, the films and pizza and summer kind of all go together. That was really, I mean, part of what, um, uh, you know, my kids and I would do it or order pizza and watch movies, right? There's very few things that are as um, satisfying as that. So, uh, so the, the, you know, and Ant and I, uh, you can never do anything as evidenced by the rest of the development community with a straight face. So uh, if we were going to do a, a film school, um, 
we wanted it to be accessible, but we also wanted to take the piss out of it at the same time, because what do we know, ultimately? Um, so by calling it Pizza Film School and getting everyone to order pizza, we felt like it would create the right casual environment for, you know, discussing movies, especially because, you know, we're not, we, we make no bones about our, you know, um, our combination of, uh, our, our influences being a combination of populist films and art house films. And I think it really speaks to who we are as filmmakers. And I also, as anyone who has worked with us can tell you, you have to feed us uh, frequently or we get a little wonky. So, <laughs> so it makes everything go better. <laughs>